Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you for braving the uh, absence of snow to join us this morning uh, for discussion of, of what I think is an extremely important issue. My name is Julian Sanchez. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I think it's so important that we are here to talk about local police surveillance because for me, the image of the chilling power of government surveillance is not, you know, the jowly face of, of, of J. Edgar Hoover or anything revealed by Edward Snowden, but a tiny detail from an article I read about the uh, New York Police Department's surveillance of Muslim communities there. It was a, a note on the wall of the Columbia University Student Association saying, in essence, we don't know who's here. Please don't discuss anything controversial. We don't want trouble. Uh, it is easy to forget amid disclosures of the vast scale of data collection at the federal level that for practical purposes, the surveillance that most directly and palpably touches people's lives happens locally. And that local monitoring and local policing has in the decade and change since 9-11 received an incredible infusion of federal money with relatively little uh, accountability or oversight to determine how effectively it's being used, but it means that local police departments now have uh, access to incredibly sophisticated surveillance technology and also a perceived mandate to monitor, uh, well, to monitor potential subversive activity, potential terrorist activity in a way that easily shades into the kind of political surveillance that our history has taught us so well we need to be on guard to avoid. Uh, so I'm delighted to introduce the rest of our excellent panel to have as our moderator, the Washington Post's Adam Goldman, who uh, is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, among many other awards, including the Poe Award from the uh, White House Correspondents Association and the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting for his uh, excellent series on the NYPD's counterterrorism uh, unit uh, and the author with uh, uh, Matt Apuzo of the book uh, Enemies Within, which is absolutely excellent based on that series. Uh, Matt will introduce, or Adam will introduce the remainder of the panel for us. Thank you again. Hi. Uh, to the left of me, we have Mike Price. Uh, Mike serves as counsel for the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, which seeks to ensure that our government respects human rights and fundamental freedoms in conducting the fight against terrorism. Uh, to his left is Eileen Lawrence. Is that she's the director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues with the Government Accountability Office, an independent, nonpartisan agency that is often called the Congressional Watchdog. Uh, to my right here, we've got uh, Jim Harper. Uh, he's the director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, where he works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. And last but not least, Mike German, he is the Policy Counsel for National Security and Privacy for the American Civil Liberties Union Washington Legislative Office. A 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement, German served as a special agent with the FBI, where he specialized in domestic terrorism and covert operations. I think we'll, I'll, I'll just let the panel begin. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. <laughs> See if I can do this right now. Good morning. Um, welcome. Uh, 
So over the past couple of years, um, there have been a handful of really excellent reports identifying uh, some of the problems with fusion centers and suspicious activity reporting. Um, in particular, um, the Senate Homeland Security Committee put out uh, a report last year uh, showing how fusion centers are collecting information that turns out to be useless, potentially illegal, um, and in a really wasteful uh, manner. The, uh, the GAO obviously has a report out this year uh, looking at the FBI's eGuardian system. And uh, of course, ACLU has uh, a couple of reports showing uh, abuses of the Fusion Center system in California and uh, Massachusetts. Uh, the Brennan Center now has a, a report um, just released yesterday, uh, National Security and Local Police, which um, seeks to understand why this is happening. Um, we uh, wondered, for instance, why 95% or more than 95% of the suspicious activity reports that are sent around and, and bounced through the federal networks are never investigated by the FBI. Why is it that um, there is so much uh, noise, so much useless information uh, floating around? And what we did was look at uh, a sampling of police departments and fusion centers and JTTFs from around the country. Um, we looked at 16 uh, police departments uh, from New York to Los Angeles and everywhere in between, uh, 19 fusion centers affiliated with them, uh, along with 14 joint terrorism task forces. Um, what we found um, was a, a federally subsidized, uh, loosely coordinated system for collecting and sharing information uh, that operates uh, according to varying local standards and with almost no oversight and accountability. Um, this is what I, I wrote uh, and, and called organized chaos, um, which seems to be uh, a pretty good description for what is shaping up to be a mess. Um, there is a, a disconnect between the, the rhetoric about fusion centers and suspicious activity reports and the reality on the ground. Um, and that sort of comes in, in two broad categories. The first is the rules under which they all operate, um, and then the lack of oversight um, that runs pretty much throughout the system. Um, for, you know, just starting with the rules, the federal uh, officials involved in the system often praise the, uh, the federal standards uh, for information sharing as being protective of privacy and civil rights and civil liberties. Um, they talk about how uh, the system is compliant with other federal rules for uh, sharing information, for sharing criminal intelligence information. Uh, if any of you are familiar with 28 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 23, which requires reasonable suspicion of criminal activity to share criminal intelligence data. Um, they say, hey, we're, we comply with that. Um, in reality, uh, things get a lot more fuzzy. Um, and part of the reason for that is federalism. Uh, the federal government cannot simply dictate to state and local police departments uh, how they should run their shows. Uh, they can't directly set the rules. Um, and so what you have is uh, different rules operating at, a, at different levels. So the local police departments involved here uh, each of them have their own standards for what officers can collect, what counts as suspicious activity, um, what should be done with that information. Um, and the way it works is, um, you 
should have a nifty little graphic um, that came with the report. Um, that information then goes to state and regional fusion centers, which analyze the data according, again, to their own rules, um, and then share it uh, with a, at least a couple of, of federal information sharing networks, the FBI's eGuardian system, and the, uh, the information sharing environment, which was set up by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and again, even those have different rules. So it, there are, there's one set of rules operating at the local level, um, another with the fusion centers, and another at the, the federal uh, information sharing level. Um, these don't always mesh well together. Of the 16 police departments that we looked at, um, about half of them followed a, a reasonable suspicion requirement. The other half did not. Um, because fusion centers are often run by state and local police, you would think that the rules at that level are more or less the same or consistent. Um, in at least one instance uh, of the departments that we looked at, that was not the case. Um, there were differing rules between what local police could collect and share and what the fusion centers could do with it. Um, and then at the federal level, you have uh, eGuardian and, and the information sharing environment, both with different uh, rules about what information can be retained and for how long. Um, the result has been a considerable variation in the quality of data, um, and uh, it, it really subverts the purpose of having a national standard when you have so many different rules and so many different types of data flowing into this. Um, in California, for instance, um, officers are trained to report on suspicious activities, and I'm going to read from a training manual that I picked up uh, in San Francisco, um, including staying at bus and train stops for extended periods of time while buses and trains come and go, sitting in a parked car for extended periods of time, ordering food at restaurants and leaving before the food arrives, ordering food and not eating. Um, they, they also look for individuals who carry on long conversations or pay or carry on long conversations on pay or cellular phones, and joggers who stand and stretch for an inordinate amount of time. Uh, it's funny, except, you know, this is actually what's going on. Um, in Houston, uh, the criteria are so broad that they include anything deemed suspicious or worthy of reporting. Uh, so we have uh, really sort of vague and subjective rules, uh, even at the, the local level. There, there are federal standards for suspicious activity reporting, but those are, uh, I mean, fairly vague. Um, it's up to local police departments to flesh those out, and this is what they often end up with. Um, the uh, result is that many police departments and fusion centers have been apt to report on uh, activity that is protected by the First Amendment, um, photography, political activity, um, and that there does seem to be a, uh, a uh, tendency to report on individuals of Middle Eastern origin on top of that. Um, so you know, take a look at these uh, suspicious activity reports that come through the system. You'll often see things like, um, you know, two men seen photographing on the corner of 12th and K, or two Middle Eastern men seen photographing on the corner of 12th and K, and that's all there is. Um, there's, there's no indication, um, we found, that this information is actually providing 
uh, unique value to counterterrorism efforts. Um, the uh, Senate reports um, in particular demonstrate the large quantity of uh, useless information pumping through this system. Um, and that in turn makes it uh, in some ways harder to connect the dots. The page is black with dots. Um, then you have the oversight problems. Um, at the Fusion Center level, there's virtually no independent oversight. Um, we looked at, at uh, the systems that were in place and found that while Fusion Centers have uh, privacy officers, they're generally members of the Fusion Center, and, and there is no uh, independent auditing going on to see if anyone is even complying with the rules that exist. Um, at the, the local police department level, uh, there is often some sort of oversight and complaint mechanism, um, but it requires uh, somebody to actually complain. Um, so the way it would work is, is if a police officer stops you on the street uh, without justification and roughs you up, um, you would be able to go to, say, the Civilian Complaint Review Board and have your case adjudicated. Um, that's really not the case with uh, surveillance abuses, with intelligence abuses, which often go undetected by the people who are harmed by them. Um, as a result, uh, you, know, you really need something else going on, uh, more akin to what we have at the federal level in terms of an, an inspector general, uh, somebody who can peer behind the, the veil of, of uh, intelligence operations and try and determine uh, if the police are complying with these rules because uh, there isn't uh, another way to do it that's based on complaints. Um, so we're recommending uh, I mean, two changes, two broad categories of changes here. Um, and the first is to tighten the rules for uh, suspicious activity reporting, uh, for information sharing, to not just have a, a vague conception of suspicious activity, but to look for suspicious criminal activity, uh, to follow the reasonable suspicion standard for collecting and reporting and sharing information. Um, and then the other aspect of this is, is stronger oversight uh, at all levels of the process, at the uh, local, regional, and federal levels. Um, we'd like to see, uh, the, see Congress attach requirements to uh, further funding to clarify um, that reasonable suspicion standard has to be uh, the rule and uh, at the state and local level, um, the same. And uh, oversight uh, plus the rule changes, I think, will tighten up the system and uh, not only help prevent some of the abuses that we've seen over the past uh, now decade, um, but improve our safety and our civil liberties. OK, Eileen, you want to pick it up? <laughs> Thank you, and good morning. Uh, we're happy to have the invitation to come and share with you our body of work that we've been uh, conducting on the whole issue of terrorism-related information sharing. And yes, we are legislative branch agencies, so our bosses are the Congress. And all the work that we do is really at the request of chairs or ranking members of committees or subcommittees of Congress. In this area, mainly the House and Senate Homeland Security Committee. So from time to time over the years, they've been asking us questions uh, about information sharing, and specifically about fusion centers. What are these things? What do they do? Why do we need them? Why are we funding them? And what are we getting in, as a result? So um, just a short history lesson, if you will. 
Um, back in 2005, GEO, um, coming off of the 9-11 Commission report, determined that information sharing or the problems with terrorism-related information sharing were so significant that if we didn't fix them, it would pose a serious security liability to the nation. And so we placed terrorism-related information sharing on what GEO calls its high-risk list. And we've been in the business almost 100 years now, and we look at everything that the federal government does. So back in the late 80s, we decided we had somewhat of a perspective to be able to look across government and figure out what were those salient issues that rose to the, the level of saying these pose significant risks to the economy and to the nation. And so if you end up on the high-risk list, we bug you every couple of years. We do a... Um, update on progress the government's making in solving these issues. So we placed the issue on the high-risk list in 2005, and since then we've been looking at government efforts to, sh to improve sharing across federal agencies, within particular agencies, and also with state and local law enforcement, and our work in that area has predominantly been around fusion centers. Um, across agencies, we've been focusing a lot on the stand-up of the information sharing environment, a somewhat um, esoteric thing that Congress called for in the Intelligence Reform Act of 2004. There's a program manager's office that reports to the White House. So we've been really looking at progress in standing up that environment and reporting on that and holding the agencies accountable for that. Um, last January, we issued our most recent high-risk update. We're tracking nine fundamental issues with um, information sharing. We passed them on two, gave them progress on six, and noted that one showed little progress. So we'll be doing another update in January 2015. Within agencies, we've been spending a lot of time with the Department of Homeland Security. About a year ago, last September, we issued a report on DHS information sharing, and probably this spring we'll be looking at uh, issuing a report on DHS's intelligence enterprise and how that's working. Um, and as I mentioned, we've been doing a lot of work on fusion centers. So the general questions that we seem to get asked about sharing with state and local is really how capable are state and local in identifying terrorist threats versus traditional crimes, whole issues around protecting privacy and civil liberties, and then what is the relationship with the federal government and state and locals, coordination, collaboration, leverage, help from the feds. So our first look at fusion centers was back in 2008, and it was pretty much of a mishmash back then. They were in all levels of maturity. A lot of them were just standing up. They were just struggling with trying to put, put the lights on, let alone being able to do real intelligence analysis. We reported a number of challenges, security clearances. Do they have facilities to be able to handle this information? Were they getting access to the kinds of information they needed? And what kinds of analytical capabilities did they have? Um, and we reported that they were looking to the feds for a lot of help, in particular money, but also the FBI was um, providing facilities, secure um, uh, rooms for storage and uh, using this information um, and other types of personnel support, information, et cetera. So over the years, I think the Department of Homeland Security saw potential in the fusion centers. Um, maybe they saw them as the regional structure that they never were really able to get, similar to what the FBI and some other federal agencies had. So they sort of took a real interest in working with the fusion centers. And back in um, looking to, to have the fusion centers really be additional eyes and ears, if you will, for the federal government, the FBI seemed to be a little bit more reluctant. Um, they saw 
I think they were concerned about what the, the fusion centers were doing and making sure that they could capitalize on any information that they were gathering. But um, I don't know that they embrace the fusion centers to the same level maybe that DHS has done. Um, and then the program manager I mentioned, the program manager for the information sharing environment saw uh, opportunities to create a national network of centers, meaning that they would use a primary center in a state to be the, the representative in that state for sort of liaison and two-way communication um, with the national network and the federal agencies. So back in um, 2008, we noticed that you know, a lot of centers were not only focusing on terrorism, but they were also beginning to focus on what they said were traditional crimes. And some have even now gone to focus on all hazards, meaning they're bringing the emergency response, first responders, firefighters into their um, centers and into their missions. A lot of reasons why this might be happening. They might not have had enough business in the terrorism area, not enough funding to be able to sustain themselves. So the more parties they brought into the center, the more funding streams they could also bring into the center. So we, um, some folks on the Hill though are worried about whether the pendulum has swung too far and there's not enough focus. We're not, we don't have enough visibility on the terrorism piece. So we had another report in 2010. We were asked to take a look at two things. Back then the centers were starting to raise concerns about where they're gonna really be able to sustain operations over the long term. Was the federal government going to be there for them with the funding stream, or was it just going to provide startup money and then leave it up to the centers to survive? And then we also looked at the current uh, state of fusion centers and privacy policies. So back then we reported that centers were probably relying about two-thirds of the funding to centers were, fe were federal funds. So there was a lot of leverage, federal leverage in the centers. And they were concerned about sustainment, and they really were hoping that they could have a separate budget line item in the federal grant program. But I think DHS felt like the politics of that wasn't going to happen, that there were a lot of people that wanted their own separate budget line items in the states and didn't want to have to compete across the states for federal grant dollars. So what they did was try to, to alter the grant uh, the, the language or what the grants could be used for to try to encourage funding federal um, fusion centers to use federal funding in more specific ways. And I'll get to that in a minute. At the time we looked at privacy policies, DHS and FBI were really, um, the fusion centers had to develop privacy policies and had to have them certified by the federal government if they wanted to continue to receive federal dollars. And at that time, there were all but a few that had uh, not, did not have certified policies, and they shortly were certified them because no one wanted to risk federal funding. But our whole concern was it's one thing to have a policy in place. It's another to have any oversight over that policy and to determine how it's being implemented. Uh, and we didn't see that in place. Since then, um, the DHS and FBI have designed what they call sort of baseline capabilities for fusion centers and one of those capabilities is that you have sort of an audit process for your privacy uh, policies. If you want to continue to receive federal funding in the out years, they're trying to push the fusion centers to fill these capability gaps. But we have not taken a deep dive on that, but that they are trying to put that in place to have a little bit more effect. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is that 
um, there's a lot of attrition in the fusion centers, especially with the fusion center directors. So there's still a lot of need to, to sort of relearn and re-educate people about the role of fusion centers and about some of these concerns and uh, checks and balances that need to be in place. Um, we also did a report in 2010 where we looked at, you know, as I mentioned, the federal government was hoping to use state and local law enforcement, particularly in border communities, as eyes and ears for threats coming over the border. So we took a look at that, and what we found was that um, the state and locals that we talked about to said, you know, we need more information and help and training about what does that mean? What are we looking for? And that was the early stages of wanting some kind of uh, behavior indicators. What was the federal government interested in? And we found that the most important thing to help state and locals was the relationship that they had with their federal counterparts within their jurisdictions. So uh, DHS, Customs and Border, Immigration, FBI would usually have field offices or some presence in, so, in those um, local jurisdictions. And so we found that if they had healthy relationships um, that, re that seemed to work better, but we found a lot of gaps in relationships between the feds and the state and locals at that time as well. This past spring, we issued a, a couple of reports um, that I just wanted to briefly highlight. Before I get to the SAR report, one was taking really a look at sort of what we're hearing called the domestic intelligence infrastructure in this country. And there are some that say that we sort of have a handle on the national intelligence infrastructure. But since 9-11, we really haven't taken a look and asked ourselves, how should we be structured domestically for a terrorism and counterterrorism mission? And so some of our clients asked us to take a look at, well, what are fusion centers versus joint terrorist task forces? And then the counter-narcotics had um, intelligence centers from the 70s. Uh, the FBI has field intelligence groups. So there are about five different kinds of entities that sort of were, we think, thought were doing similar things. And that's what we took a look at and did report that there's an awful lot of potential for overlap and duplication among these centers. And what we were hoping to, at a minimum, was that they're talking to each other, they're beginning to coordinate, leverage resources, and uh, learn from each other that way. But I think there's going to be a continued discussion about you know, how, how we want to be structured domestically for this counterterrorism mission moving forward. And that's what we hear the program manager for the information sharing environment also talking about. So we made a number of recommendations to both program manager and the agencies to try to push these field entities to better collaborate and coordinate. Again, a lot of that depended on the personalities of the directors in the field. If you're SAC, like the Fusion Center director, they might collaborate. If not, that wasn't happening. So we were trying to institutionalize more um, tools, put, put more tools in place to make sure that kind of um, leveraging was happening. And every time we make a recommendation, then we're required to follow up with the agencies for at least four years afterwards to push them and nudge them and make sure that they're responding to our recommendations and we publicly report on that. So we are seeing some um, probably more progress from <clears throat> the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of National Drug Control Policy, a little less uh, embracing of our recommendations in terms of the FBI, but we're looking to continue to try to push the leverage there. And finally, that gets us to um, our report that we did this spring on the Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative. So we looked at a number of um, questions about that initiative. And we reported that overall, the people involved in it seem to have uh, a 
fairly positive perspective about the rollout of that initiative. But what we were hearing from state and locals is, um, gee, we'd like more feedback from the federal government, especially the FBI. We report these things. We don't know if we're reporting good information, bad information. Is it useful? It sort of goes into a black hole and we don't know what's happening. And if they don't give us more feedback, we'll probably lose interest moving forward and continuing to try to provide this information. So we did make um, a recommendation to the agencies to try to determine if they could provide more feedback because we think that would be one way to help educate state and locals about what they are collecting, how to collect that, and what is useful or not. Um, the FBI argued that if the centers were using their eGuardian system, that the eGuardian system did, if you go in, you can tell whether or not a SAR was under investigation or if the FBI had determined there was some kind of linked to terrorism, and so fusion centers could get their own feedback if they wanted, but not everybody was uh, familiar with that or using eGuardian in that situation. So we're continuing to look at that issue. Um, then, as we also heard that there were still some questions about GEOS, or the, the federal government's standards about how fusion centers were supposed to take this information and vet it and make sure that it was just reporting behaviors and the kinds of behaviors that was set up in the, quote, functional standard for the federal government. But the FBI was concerned that um, some information was coming into the fusion centers was not meeting the functional standard, and so centers were not passing that on to the FBI. So the FBI still wanted even those pieces that were coming in because they felt that those pieces sometimes could enhance the re records and reports that they had on individuals. So there's as I understand it, and maybe you're more educated about it, a move afoot to revise the functional standard that might address those issues as well. So these are these are pieces that don't even raise the level of the federal standard, but um, still being passed on to the federal government. A big issue that we looked at in that um, report was um, uh, Dr. Coburn has been pushing GEO to take a look at potential overlap and duplication across the federal government. We've had three... Um, fairly significant reports um, on this <clears throat> issue, and so we were asked to really take a look at potential duplication and overlap, and one of the things that jumped out of that is that the federal government was paying for two systems to manage the SAR process, eGuardian, and then they um, had also provided shared uh, or service to the, to the fusion centers to sort of maintain control over their own information. From what we can tell early on in the SAR process, state and locals were very concerned about FBI uh, having their SAR information and controlling it, and concerns about how long the FBI was go gonna hold on to that information. If they reported information and it turned out that it was erroneous or needed to be deleted from the system, they felt like they didn't have control over taking that information out of the system. So there were a lot of concerns about just having the eGuardian system be the, the predominant system. And so fusion centers were, uh, had their own shared service, uh, their own service to be able to manage the information that they collect. And we noted that some states had more stringent privacy and civil liberty laws and protections than um, the federal government. And so there was some conflict and these shared, these servers helped them to um, address that issue as well. Um, but I think now there may have been some changes since our report. More fusion centers are moving to the eGuardian. The FBI has made some changes in terms of like how long they retain some of the information, 
fusion centers can limit who actually sees the information that they're reporting. And so the FBI has been trying to make um, concessions and changes to their system to address some of the concerns from the fusion centers. We also real quickly looked at training. Um, the federal government was trying to train every state and local law enforcement person in the country. And guess what? We were a little behind, especially with uh, uh, law enforcement. And we recommended that they do a better job of assessing how effective their training was, especially for the state and local law enforcement. And um, they have been taking action on that. Um, we also we also reported on, well, what difference is all of this information making? What are we getting out of that? And as you know, the FBI has been reporting the number of investigations that they open up as a result of SARS. And in our report, uh, back at the end of 2012, we were reporting that there were 28,000 SARS in the system and no, 1,200 were under investigation by the FBI. DHS did a separate report and concluded that 72% of the SARS were used in some type of intelligence product off of that. Um, but we were saying that even so, even if the FBI opened an investigation, really, how many of these SARS resulted in some kind of a link to a terrorist threat or a crime or resulted in some Homeland Security benefit? There's an awful lot of information, significant deployment, a lot of resources, a lot of potential for um, harm and concerns. And so we recommended that the federal government try to develop better measures on looking at what difference these are making. Um, and I understand the International Association of Chiefs of Police have been working. They established a working group trying to work with the federal government on some of these issues. So that's kind of where we've been uh, on this issue. We currently have uh, a review, yet again, uh, looking at the fusion centers. Um, because of Dr. Coburn's uh, staff's report about the potential issues that um, they found with fusion centers, we've been asked to go in and take another look at sort of what's happening. Um, and they're particularly interested in understanding to what extent can the federal government have more leverage over the centers? Can they have more? say over how federal dollars are being used in the centers, and can the federal government better account for how fusion centers are using federal funding? As you know, DHS really takes the position that these are state and local centers. They were created by state and local entities, and so the federal government is more um, of a facilitator and really can't dictate. And the only leverage that they have is really through FEMA grants. But if you notice the um, trends, uh, in 2010, we saw 60, about 60, about two thirds of federal of fusion center um, operating budgets depended on federal dollars. But I think more recently, it was down to about a third, and the number, the amount of grants has been decreasing. So, what little leverage the federal government does have through uh, grant funding is also uh, kind of dissipating. So, there are some concerns about how much the federal government can really influence sort of what the centers are doing. So. We are keeping our eyes out uh, still. Thank you. Uh, Jim? <clears throat> Thanks. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thanks for those of you, to those of you watching online. Uh, I want to congratulate Michael and the Brennan Center for this report, which is, I think is a great touchstone for our discussion today. Uh, and, and, and note the fact that the Brennan Center does a lot of good work. Uh, we did an event here a couple of months ago on travel surveillance that was basically derivative of a talk that I saw at the Brennan Center put on by Ed Hasbrook. 
So, uh, so uh, hearty congratulations to Brennan, and we're glad to have you working on these issues with us, as well as so many other groups. Uh, it's good to focus somewhat on states and localities at this time, because uh, people shouldn't be deceived into thinking that the NSA and the, the leaks of Edward Snowden are the only game in town. Uh, we have been uh, seeing this kind of thing develop over the last decade, over the last dozen years. A way I like to talk about it is that after 911, a thousand ships sailed, a thousand security ships sailed, and many of them don't have a destination. Uh, I think it's time to, to call fusion centers and call joint terrorism task forces back into port, decommission them, and focus on things that actually demonstrably work. As you can tell, I'm a little less managerial and a little more libertarian red meat than my colleagues who've spoken up to this point. Um, the, the report's an excellent read and obviously uh, shows a, a, a great deal of attention and care. And I was uh, particularly interested in, in the discussion of intelligence-led policing to look for examples of how Joint Terrorism Task Force and fusion centers uh, are actually intelligent. Didn't, didn't find much. Didn't find how, how they are actually intelligence organizations but rather sort of um, careless and sloppy data collection uh, organizations that, that uh, I think with great, uh, taking, taking great pains to, to help in the counterterrorism effort aren't really doing very much. Um, that's, that's actually because of some good news. There's very, very little terrorism to confront in the United States. Um, so, so these ships don't really have a destination. The, the report, I think, raises, in a managerial context, raises some very important issues that are, I think, very good to think about, including what is suspicion? What kinds of things are, are the subject of reasonable suspicion? I come to these issues from a constitutional perspective, um, though I work in, in the technology area as well. And I, in, a, in a paper on data mining um, some years back, wrote a little bit about uh, uh, the, the Terry versus Ohio case and how you might uh, try to generate suspicion as articulated by the court in that case in a, in a sort of data context. And, and you start to think about what went on in that case. So I'll, I'll go into the case just a little bit because it's worth understanding. Um, Officer McFadden was patrolling, patrolling the streets and he saw a guy acting suspiciously. Now that's a conclusion. What he saw was a guy walking back and forth in front of a store, looking in, leaving again, coming back by, looking in, uh, talking to a few other, other fellas, going back, looking at the store again, leaving again, several times. And, and later, a few blocks away, having generated suspicion, he, he took a hold of Terry, turned him around, patted him down, and found a gun. Uh, the court validated that uh, seizure and that search by saying that, that Officer McFadden had reasonable suspicion based on articulable fact. This phrase is hammered into your head in law school in your criminal procedure class. Reasonable, reasonable suspicion based on articulable fact. Uh, try to make that into some kind of algorithm or move it closer to a sort of algorithmic, logical way of looking at, at facts. And, and I, I started to think of it as information that is consistent with wrongdoing but inconsistent with lawful behavior. It has to be both. If, if, if you're a fan of Supreme Court decisions, you'd say that Justice Harper has offered a two-pronged test. 
consistent with wrongdoing, inconsistent with right doing or lawful behavior. Uh, most attempts at suspicion succeed on the first part and fail on the second part. So the classic example is, the, is photography. Oh, I saw some people taking photographs of monuments down on the mall. They must be planning to destroy them. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> taking photographs of things can be part of a plan to destroy them. But taking fo photographs of things can also be part of a plan to tour the Washington, D.C. area with your children. So it fails the second prong of that test. And you see again and again where people uh, who I don't doubt, I don't doubt the, the good faith, um, just fail to consider the entire spectrum of, of, of rationality, fail to, fail to consider what, uh, what produces real suspicion. You have to not only see something that's, that, that is consistent with illegality, but must, it must be not consistent with legality. Uh, that's, that's, uh, there, there's some wiggle room in there, and maybe perhaps adding more facts uh, fulfills that test. I'll, I'll say as an aside that, that the court said reasonable suspicion based on articulable fact, facts that could be articulated, I suppose would be another way of referring to that. How about reasonable suspicion based on articulated fact? That is, if you think, you're, if you think something is suspicious, why not articulate the facts? that make it suspicious. And I think in, in, the, in JTTFs and infusion centers, uh, administrative measures should be in place so that you don't fall back on, well, I have suspicion, so, so therefore it is suspicious. But there should be sort of intake procedures that actually take uh, analysts through that process. Say why this is consistent with illegality. Say what things it could be consistent with that are legal and try, and try to make sure that you're you're capturing information that is uh, inconsistent with, with lawful behavior. Uh, to me, all this, all this discussion sort of harkens to the, um, the artificiality of suspicious activity reporting. And I think the probable uh, inutility of suspicious activity reporting overall. Uh, suspicious activity reporting has a long history. It actually um, starts with the Bank Secrecy Act, which was passed in the early 1970s and implemented uh, ever since then, requiring to d still today uh, financial services providers of all stripes, and many that you wouldn't even imagine are, consider are truly financial services providers, to report suspicious activity, as well as to report transactions of over $10,000. It's, it's like formalized financial see something, say something. And... While it would be wonderful to, to take uh, organic human processes and formalize them and, make, and get a lot more so that we're more secure, I don't think it works. And the suspicious activity reports in the financial area uh, number into the millions and rarely, if ever, result in any information, any actionable inf information. Somewhat uh, painfully, well, I'll report to you that that um, there was a there was a Treasury Department Bank Secrecy Act report that brought secrecy uh, uh, rather that brought suspicious activity reporting into question. It said, given the millions of dollars spent by financial services providers on suspicious activity reporting, given the millions of dollars we spend collecting and and analyzing suspicious activity reports, we're not seeing a lot of law enforcement bang for the buck. 
uh, prosecutions uh, uh, are costing uh, per per prosecution ten. <clears throat> $15 million on suspicious activity reporting just to get to a prosecution. That's not cost-effective police work. And the society would be better off not spending $15 million just to arrive at a single prosecution, even allowing uh, some crime to go forward. If it, if it costs less than $15 million to the society, I think that's fairly obvious. The report was issued, if I recall correctly, during the first week of September 2001. Uh, since then, obviously, suspicious activity reporting has expanded quite dramatically, as well as know your customer rules and everything else in the financial services area. So a dozen years later, we still have suspicious activity reporting. We're getting underway uh, to actually probably uh, curtail or, or ideally even do away with suspicious activity reporting. Uh, true suspicious activity reporting is an organic process. It's an organic process that, that occurs when somebody knows a lot about something, and find something that stands out uh, as, as, as unusual. Uh, Bruce Schneier, the, the uh, cryptographer and computer security guru whose work, uh, whose work extrapolates so well into security generally, talks about people discovering things that are hinky. The word he uses is hinky, and I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty <clears throat> good one. So when the, the New Year's Eve bombing plot was broken up by a, a, a border agent uh, in Washington state, it's because she had a lot of experience seeing people come off the, the, the ferry and, and drive their cars off the ferry. She'd seen it hundreds, thousands of times over her career there. And she recognized that this person was acting differently enough from all the others. Even the people who were under stress one day, even the people who you know, had car trouble or whatever it might be, this one stood out. So she asked him a couple of questions and, and turned up what, what ended up being the New Year's Eve bomb plot. Can you institutionalize that? Can you make that happen three times a week? You absolutely cannot because of the lack of attackers, for one, but also because you need to rely on these organic processes. The ones that I like better are the, are the cute stories. Uh, there, there's a, there's a, a tale where uh, a, a janitor or, or, or other worker in a college dormitory who was a Vietnam veteran uh, discovered a weapon in a dorm room because as he walked by, he heard the sound of it cocking, and he recognized that sound from his military experience and knew that that sound should not be heard in a college dormitory. So a gun was discovered because he knew so much in this domain of the, the sound of weapons that, and, and knew that that sound shouldn't be heard in a college dormitory. My favorite example of this, activity, uh, this organic discovery of suspicious, suspicious behavior uh, comes from the, the year that the World Cup was being uh, was being played in France. And a, uh, uh, a traveler presented at the, at the border between Turkish and Greek Cyprus. Uh, a man presented a French passport, and he was wearing an England soccer jersey. <laughs> this cannot happen. No one carrying a French passport would ever wear an England soccer jersey. Turns out he was a Moroccan uh, prospective illegal immigrant uh, into France. So ordering people to go out and find stuff like that can't be done. Suspicious activity reporting where you task people to go out and find things that are suspicious really can't be done. We have to rely on organic processes and people who care enough about society to report things like this. And post 911, I mean 911 was was maybe the best public service announcement that the society could ever have to be aware of things and to report suspicious things. I'm not anti 
uh, reporting of suspicious activity, but to try to formalize it, I think, is a mistake and causes overreporting that has all these civil liberties costs, uh, not to mention dollar costs. It's easier to make dollar-based arguments because you have something measurable. Uh, I love privacy, and I work very hard to protect privacy, but if you can make a dollar-based argument, I, I recommend that. This is a dollar-based argument to reduce Joint Terrorism Task Force and Fusion Centers. It's a medallion that was made by the, the Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. And on the back it says, Protecting America's Playground. I was given one of these medallions when, as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Privacy Committee, we visited the, uh, the, the uh, Fusion Center in, in, in Las Vegas. It was a fun trip. If, was that at the Bellagio? Yeah. <laughs> in the basement of the Bellagio? The, uh, this, is, this is a confession that this Fusion Center has too much money. If they're printing up, if they're, if they're, if they're having these kinds of things minted to give away to guests like me, they have too much money. Uh, and this is, this is not just a cheap sort of, uh, 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 I mean, this is a cheap ploy to hold this thing up. But I think, I think literally, uh, but a far too expensive ploy, my point. Um, literally, I think JTTFs and fusion centers would fail a cost-benefit analysis if one were done. Of the 1.4 billion, if I remember the number correctly, of the 1.4 billion spent on this stuff by just the federal government, have we gotten more than $1.4 billion in protection? Um, that, how many hundreds of lives have to have been saved by these processes? I have my doubts that, that absent JTTFs and fusion centers, uh, we would have lost hundreds of lives to any, any of the attacks, certainly terrorist attacks, or even just general crime, uh, crime problems that, uh, that JTTFs and fusion centers are migrating into absent, absent terrorism. So, um, I think the dollar-based arguments about these things could be very strong because I think we're wasting money on them and making society worse, worse off simply on that basis, even without considering the privacy and civil liberties consequences, which are, which are significant. In closing, I'll just say don't be timid about terrorism. I think a lot of reports, and, and this, one, uh, this one, a lot of folks in the civil liberties world uh, want to stick to the legal issues because that's where we're comfortable. That's what we know about. Uh, they want to stick to management because that's where we're comfortable and that's what we know about. Uh, here at Cato, we've done a lot of work on, on terrorism and counterterrorism. And we're in a position uh, to, to talk about it because, because uh, our, my conclusion uh, is that our country is quite safe. Terrorism is well managed. We have a book called Terrorizing Ourselves that goes into strategic counterterrorism and examines so many dimensions of this issue. Uh, my colleague John Mueller does excellent, excellent work to analyze the actual, the actual threat from terrorism, which is quite low. Uh, 911, I think the best, the, the best judgment is that 911 was an outlier and not a harbinger. So we really are dealing with, um, some call them lone wolves, I think stray dogs is, is uh, a more accurate uh, uh, description of the, of the people we deal with. So from time to time, yes, we'll have what I, what I think are probably rightly called pinpricks on our society. Uh, like the Boston attacks. Now, very devastating for the families, no question. But for our society as a whole, uh, quite small and inconsequential. The Fort Hood attack, similarly, very devastating for the families, and, and I don't deny that, but very, very tiny. They, they um, pale in comparison to the number of uh, highway deaths on, in, on a given weekend or even a given Friday night across the country. You so, can argue the reaction to the attacks, um, shutting down Boston, which cost millions, tens of millions of dollars, yep. more yep. devastating than 
Indeed, and, and in fact, that's how terrorism uh, sort of works its will is by uh, is by uh, inducing strong players to to uh, to overplay their hands, to overreact. Uh, the the cost of nine one one, if you if you sum it up, the bulk of the cost came in overreaction, which which regrettably our country entered into in the form of war and and various uh, massive expenditures of blood and treasure. So I've gone long about that. I I want civil liberties and privacy advocates uh, to be strong on the terrorism issue. So you could, so don't concede the point that we have to have all this stuff because of the threat of terrorism. Don't, don't wave your hand and say, I concede that, because uh, we're, our country is, is uh, relatively quite safe. Terrorism is under control. That's thanks to some of the efforts that got underway after 9-1-1. The rest of them we can draw down and zero out in our budgets. Thanks. Hi, uh, I'm Mike German from the ACLU. First, I, I'd like to thank uh, everyone here. Um, when I left the FBI in 2004, I, I didn't realize how much I'd uh, regret losing subpoena power, as I do investigations <laughs> of, uh, of what, uh, uh, government activity, what government activities are potentially illegal. So I appreciate the, the work of investigative journalists like Adam, obviously uh, advocacy groups we work with like the Brennan Center and, and Cato that we've partnered with with on this issue for, for quite some time now. And of course, internal watchdogs like GAO are, are, are tremendously important to giving the public the information it needs to know so it can start to evaluate these programs. Uh, because as, as Jim suggests, you know, the, the use of this money and the claim of the need for these authorities needs to be investigated, right? I and mean, the ACLU has long been concerned over the course of its 90-year history that whenever you give police power uh, to, to organizations, whether they're federal, state, or local, uh, they will tend to abuse that unless they're strictly limited to their mission, which is criminal investigations, and uh, overseen in a way that the public can have some access to information about what the government's doing to ensure that it's doing the right thing. Um, I, I just uh, want to go very quickly uh, but let me highlight a couple of things that the ACLU has been doing recently. We did our first report uh, on fusion centers in 2007 uh, when they were mostly just getting started, sort of really rapidly developing. And, and because they are so different, it's very hard to say that there is a problem that is universal to all fusion centers. So what we did was put out a report that raised a number of concerns that would be present at any fusion center. So any fusion center ongoing or developing should make sure that they're covering these five issues. Uh, and that had to do with, you know, who's in charge. Whenever you have a bunch of agencies together, uh, it's hard to know whose rules are actually applying to the activity. And what we were afraid of is we would see uh, uh, what we called data sh or uh, policy shopping, where, you know, if, if I'm the FBI and Jim is the state police and we want to get Julian's information, oh, my rules prohibit me from getting that type of information, but your rules allow it, so we'll use your rules to get it. And then when a citizen comes and says, I want to make a Freedom of Information Act request for that information, the federal government would say, well, my rules are more strict than yours, so you give the documents to me, and that way we can prevent giving the information over. And, and, and um, we were heavily criticized <laughs> uh, for not 
uh, pointing out actual evidence of abuse. And of course, uh, the reason for that was mostly because the evidence was held in secret. <laughs> and it's very difficult to pry that information out from government. So some of the work that the ACLU has been doing recently and, and that uh, uh, my co-panelists certainly uh, uh, provide information for has started to pry out these stories uh, that demonstrate uh, that, that our concerns about potential abuse are actually realized. Uh, our Massachusetts affiliate did a Freedom of Information Act request, or actually a state open government request, for information from the Boston's Fusion Center, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, or the BRIC. Uh, they always get cool names. Um, and, and sure enough, what, what, what they obtained when they just took a, a you know, cooperating political activists, well-known political activists in the area and searched under their names was that the, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center was in fact monitoring political activity and categorizing it in a way uh, that suggested it was criminal and or the very nebulous term extremist. So uh, people like Howard Zinn were <laughs> listed as extremists, along with uh, uh, city councilor Felix Arroyo, uh, because they were participating in protest activities. And you know, one thing about these reports we find is that it's across the political spectrum. You know, it's not just that they're uh, targeting anti-war activists or, or animal rights activists, but we see, you know, even in the Boston Fusion Center, a Sarah Palin rally that was uh, documented in the intelligence files. So this isn't, you know, something that that only one side or the other has to worry about. Everybody has to worry about it, and particularly because, you know, one of the things that that makes me so passionate about this work is, is my law enforcement background. Because I know that this isn't just a violation of civil liberties and the privacy of the people involved, but is actually a waste of security resources. And uh, I, uh, among anybody here, knows from my experience, that there are real threats out there. And I think that's one thing that we have to consider when we talk about particularly the suspicious activity reporting that you know, you'll see when you look at these reports uh, is, is such a specious idea that, that collecting this type of information is useful, um, is that half of the violent crime in this country goes unsolved every year, according to FBI statistics. That includes a third of the murders go unsolved. Uh, last year, in 2012, uh, almost 60% of the rapes in this country go unsolved. So when you're putting re security resources toward this type of activity that has no uh, research-based analytics to show it's an effective use of the money, you're taking money away from other programs. And when we talk about the security in this country, everybody tends to bring up terrorism, but as, as Cato's work has shown, uh, that may not be, be the biggest threat that, that communities, particularly urban communities, face. And we need to really turn these resources back toward traditional law enforcement activities. Um, so uh, the, the ACLU of Massachusetts put out a, a report. I put some copies up front, but you can find it online. It's called Policing Dissent, Police Surveillance of Law Enforcement Activity in Boston. Uh, our California affiliate, uh, recently uh, uh, obtained uh, suspicious activity reportings from Fusion Center in Los Angeles and, and in Central California. And these reports are eye-opening. Um, and they basically fall into two categories. Uh, 
the ones you shake your head at uh, and say, why in the world would anybody be interested in collecting and documenting this information, particularly because in most cases they fall in, into what we were worried about, that it's clearly racial profiling, that you know, it's not the behavior documented itself is not suspicious, but rather the bias of the reporter on who is doing it. So we see things like uh, Middle Eastern males buying several large pallets of water. And I'm not sure what kind of explosive device you can make with water, but I would think you know the fact that we have taps in everybody's houses would be uh, uh, fairly dangerous. Um, also, uh, focusing on political protest, one of them was uh, sort of ironic. Um, demonstration against law enforcement use of excessive force. Reporting party received an email that describes a scheduled protest by an unknown number of individuals. The information indicates the protesters are concerned about the excessive use of force by law enforcement. <laughs> and also excessive spying by law enforcement, uh, which is why it's a problem to have it in this uh, environment. Uh, the, and the other thing is other First Amendment protected activity like photography. Um, and this is where training becomes an issue because, you know, so often when, when internal watchdogs identify a problem, the answer is more training. But when we see the training that they've received, it's problematic. When police officers are trained to believe photography is an indicator of terrorism, you can't then be surprised to see how heavily photography is reported. And, and we have numerous cases where uh, photographers, you know, taking a picture of a bridge or a dam or some other iconic a courthouse uh, are all of a sudden braced by law enforcement officers, you know, required to produce ID. You know, think of the, the, the diversion of security resources to stop all these photographers. But it actually gets worse. Because the information is put into these shared databases, they actually later get visited by FBI or DHS officers. So again, the diverting of resources away from true investigations based on reasonable indication of criminal activity toward this specious idea that somebody taking a picture needs to be evaluated for their potential risk, uh, potentially because a lot of these, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, part of the reason why the, the photography has seemed to jump out so much is photographers are pretty good at documenting things. <laughs> and, and they uh, document what's going on pretty well. And you can actually go online and, and Google YouTube to see, because a lot of photography activists now will record these conversations with law enforcement. And what they're told is, you're acting suspiciously, and we want to take your camera, and we want, you know, you're not allowed to take a picture of this, you're not allowed to take a picture of that. It, it's all wrong, and it's, it's creating a, a black hole for resources to continue spinning around where some of these photographers get visited time and time again. Um, so I would encourage you to go online and look at those suspicious activity reports. Um, and, and part of the problem is, is and I have a lot of discussions with, with law enforcement and Fusion Center representatives, and there's this idea that chasing down a false lead is somehow evidence of success of the program. This, when, when Senator Coburn's report in the Senate Homeland Security came out, uh, there was shortly followed by a House Homeland Security report that was generally a little more uh, uh, supportive of the idea of fusion centers, although it actually was pretty critical, particularly in saying that there weren't metrics to measure success. Uh, but this is what the FBI submitted to the committee 
as as a demonstration of a success the success of the suspicious activity reporting program. On October 8, 2010, the New York Police Department sent an advisory concerning a suspicious tractor trailer whose driver reportedly diverted its route to Times Square in New York City in exchange for $10,000. New York informed several fusion centers in the affected area. The Rhode Island State Fusion Center discovered that the original owner of the truck was a California native and asked the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center to run a background check based on the owner's information. Within two hours of the advisory's release, information from these two fusion centers were used to coordinate the Connecticut Intelligence Center, which enabled the Connecticut State Police to locate the tractor trailer before it reached its reported target in New York City. The Connecticut State Police searched the vehicle, questioned the driver and passenger, and concluded the vehicle was not a threat. But this shows how it works. <laughs> Even though I'm sure that there were, there were robberies there were rapes, there were traffic accidents, there were serious security concerns in Connecticut and Rhode Island and California during the time that everybody's chasing their tail on a, on a specious idea that, that uh, this was something that needed to be chased down that quickly. Um, part of the problem is, and I think that there is a, a better way for the federal government to address this. I mean, one of the things... Uh, that Eileen suggested that that there aren't federal tools to address state and local law enforcement. And I just want to push back against that a little bit um, because there is a federal regulation. So this has been on the books since the 1980s, put there to curb the abuses of the 1970s where many state, state and local police organizations had red squads that would go out and investigate political activity. And all, all that it really would take is enforcing that regulation. But instead, the Justice Department is actually encouraging the violation of that through these programs. And the fact that there are two separate programs, the Information Sharing Environment and the FBI eGuardian, I think what the GAO report shows is that there's a race to the bottom, right? The program that has the higher standards gets less information, so therefore there's no incentive to, to, to doing that. So the FBI having a program that, that had less standards then became the more popular program and it's, it's caused the ISC now to try to reduce its standards. Um, and again, where the type of information that's being collected, and when you look at the suspicious activity reports collected in California, it notes which ones are sent to eGuardian or in the LAPD ones, which ones were sent to the Joint Terrorism Task Forces. So we know which ones are being uh, submitted through the system, and it's clearly not based on any reasonable indication of criminal activity. And then that's one reason why I think the FBI is reluctant to provide GAO with, with any statistics that would show arrest as a result of these programs. So, um, and, and our third uh, FOIA that we've done recently uh, that's also online is the FBI's eGuardian. And one of the interesting things that we got in, through those documents is that many of the state and local law enforcement authorities were actually pushing back against the pervasive sharing eGuardian uh, system allowed. So, you know, the federal system is something that should be working for our privacy rights and I think can work. And if these fusion centers uh, were, were set up in a way where they could regulate this collection rather than just encourage it, uh, I think that might be another curb on the federal government. So there, there are ways to move forward, uh, but I think we have to have much more sunlight 
on what exactly is happening and require, as, as Jim suggests, that, that when these agencies claim these programs are, are necessary, uh, that we challenge that and, and look at it from a cost-benefit analysis. So, thanks. I just wanted to make a couple points of why we are investing in NYPD. We, we didn't have to do any FOIAs to see what they thought was suspicious because people within their police department were leaking us the documents. So thousands. And we were actually able to see what the NYPD deemed suspicious. And while we talk about fusion centers, um, we have ho whole police departments labeling communities as suspicious. Um, in the NYPD's case, going out and actually mapping the Muslim community, mapping the human terrain, creating what was known as a demographics unit. And um, you have individuals, detectives, who are untrained, who know very little about Islam, who very, know very little about Muslims, and um, going out and designating mosques, businesses, as locations of concern, deeming them suspicious on the basis of no criminal activity. And in fact, I'm looking at all these reports, it was astonishing. Um, the FBI was getting reports about suspicious activity of Muslims washing, preparing their dead for, for burial. That was coming from a mosque to the FBI. Uh, you know, in this particular case, the FBI was shredding the, the documents because they believed it violated the Privacy Act. And there's a, an, but you know, in other instances, we know it's it slipped through, and it made its way into into F, FBI files. Um, we see, you know, we saw repeated instances of this. And what was interesting in all of this is there was no accountability, there was no oversight. DHS was giving the NYPD one point two. They've given them $1.2 billion, and nobody in Congress was willing to ask the question, how is this being spent, even after we had done our reporting, and mainly because it was such a political issue, and nobody wanted to take on Ray Kelly. And the Justice Department under Attorney, you know, Attorney General Holder, he doesn't want to take on this issue either. It's been, it's been toxic. But, oh, sorry. So anyway, I just wanted to make that point about the NYPD and, and how and how this really can metastasize, even on a local level, outside of the, outside of the fusion centers. So I guess I, I, I'll start raising one question. Um, and you had made a great point about this. Uh, you know, in reality, there is a terrorism threat. There is a terrorism threat. But the number of people who have died from terrorism since 9-11 in this country is 17. Is that it? I think that's the number, 17. Um, Arguably, more could have died in Boston, and there were a couple other events in which there could have been a serious loss of life. But I, I guess we, we need to ask ourselves, so many years after 9-11, when we know that 9-11 wasn't a failure of collection, it was a failure of analysis, do we need these fusion centers? Do we need these super JTTFs on steroids? Do we need to be spending the money on this, and, and does it really make us safer? And is Congress asking that question? We tried to come um, a little close to that question in the report we issued this year, and it was really to ask, you know, why do we have fusion centers and JTTS and HIDAs and FIGs and, and risk uh, centers? Um, and 
But we, we stopped short of, and we really just looked at the extent to which they were collaborating and coordinating. In some cases, we reported on whether they were co-located. Um, but we stopped short of asking, really, um, do we need so many centers? Uh, do we need a more streamlining and coordinated um, infrastructure? And I think that's a tough question, because each of these vertical slices have their own life. They have their own funding streams. They have their own agencies. And you know, there's a lot of support for the vertical slices. It's really hard to get, I think, the political support to really ask, you know, it's, um, have the guts to really ask whether we need all of these. And you know, fusion centers are state and local centers. They're not, they weren't created by the federal government. Mm -hmm. So the federal government, I know DHS feels like they only have so much leverage. Um, just to pick up on your question, I, I mean, I think that there is a value in having coordination between different levels of government. Um, we see this usually after an incident, when the, the fusion center kicks in and, and you know, the emergency response people are all in one room, and that, that can be a good thing. Um, the, the broader question about whether uh, state and local police are really you know, set up to do this sort of intelligence uh, analysis type work is completely separate. And uh, so we talk about, you know, should, should there be collaboration? Should there be some mechanism for different levels of government to get in one room and, and talk to each other? I think the answer is yes. But do we need them uh, doing suspicious activity reporting and, and sweeping up data to the extent that they're doing? And, and the answer to that is clearly no. Um, you know, there is a, a tremendous amount of resources that have been put into this for very little return. Um, and that has had a, a tremendous impact on civil liberties um, and I think on our safety as well. Um, so to the extent that, that fusion centers are going to continue down this road of, of uh, collecting suspicious activity reports, whatever that means, um, I, I think that role needs to be minimized. Um, and the rules need to be tightened and there needs to be greater oversight. But there is some place for the coordination, I think. Well, I think my answer to your question is pretty, probably pretty clear. The, the, the interesting and challenging question is really how do you, how do you curtail them? And, um, and I'll, I'll confess, I don't know uh, because of the way the human mind works and because of how political incentives work. Uh, I don't know that I can predict good outcomes going forward. Basically, there's a wonderful mental error that people make. There's a great book I read. It's a pretty accessible book called How We Know What Just Isn't So. <laughs> and one of the examples they use in that book is, um, is uh, uh, delivery room nurses who believe that more babies are born during full moons. How do they know that more babies are born during full moons? Because they notice babies being born during full moons. And they don't notice babies being born during all the other phases of the moon. Uh, they literally, it's just not true that more babies are born during full moons. The, the, the availability heuristic, that is, if you can imagine it, it must be more common, is, is one of those mental errors people make in lots and lots of different fields. And, and the risk of terrorism is one. Uh, uh, because of 911, we can visualize a very, very dramatic uh, cause of death. Uh, where, in fact, our likely death is going to come in some kind of unceremonious, uh, sad, uh, maybe just in your sleep kind of thing. It's just hard to visualize. 
So you don't no, yeah, sorry to bum you all out. You're not, you're not gonna be heroes. Um, nor you know, nor victims, uh, except victims of your own martini uh, fetish and smoking and hamburgers and whatnot. Uh, so, but, so the public can, can visualize this dramatic death. Politicians can. Politicians um, kind of make their living by presenting problems and solutions. The, the national security bureaucracy very much makes its living by presenting problems and solutions because of secrecy. They are the top provider of information about the problem and top provider of the solution. What do you suppose happens? We, we hear more and more about the problem, so more and more solution can be delivered. Uh, and the media. The media does not make any money if they tell you everything's fine today. Uh, no cable channel that I'm aware of has a segment called Today's All Clear because that's just not going to get anybody watching. And these dynamics are some of the dynamics that, that will cause programs like this to persist. Uh, and I, I just have to argue for more clinical analysis, cost-benefit analysis, getting things into the courts, particularly the, 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 the D.C. Circuit, where they're used to looking at you know, expenditure per life saved. If we can get that kind of clinical analysis done in the in the area of counterterrorism, we might make some progress. I, I would agree with you. I think the great job. I think the media has done a great job of scaring the shit out of people for the last ten years. You know, any single blip, we'll write about and we'll override it. Um, and uh, you know, I'll give Ray Kelly. You know, he's the master of propaganda. I mean, he is into scaring people. You know, at every single point. And this is what the public digests. Um, you know, and I think in that analysis, in addition to, to the actual dollar cost, you know, I think, I think government has to realize that there is a cost to these false alarms, right? I mean, if, if somebody in this room pulls an alarm without a fire, they will try to prosecute you for it. Because we know that the, the response time will dull if the, the, the fire department has to respond to false alarms. You know, our military does that when we're before we invade somebody, we try to set off all their sensors so that they start slowing down in how they respond because they know that it's like more likely than not, not really a threat. So when we have things like the, the you know, tail chasing that went on with this uh, truck driver, it, it dulls the response. So when you look at w where individuals have fallen through the cracks and, and committed harms like in Fort Hood. Um, what, what the Webster Commission report on the FBI's investigation found was that there is a data explosion within the FBI and, and that it, it was the workload created by that data explosion that had an impact on, on the quality of that investigation. Similar in Boston, you know, the FBI did an assessment back in 2011 and, and, you know, there's still a lot more to come out, so not prejudging that assessment. That was one of 1,000 assessments the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force did that year. So with that kind of pace, things are going to fall through the cracks, and if 999 of them are false leads, the agents responding to these things are going to treat them as routine check the boxes, say you looked him in the eyes and he told you he wasn't a terrorist and move to the next one because your inbox is filling. I'll just, uh, I'm reminded of a point that, that I think is worth uh, raising that the, uh, Mike's uh, discussion of the Boston bombing. I think, or, I, I think these, these attacks, Fort Hood, Boston bombing, uh, weren't preventable in a free society. That's a little bit of a blanket statement. 
but there's lots of armchair quarterbacking and hindsight bias that people put into these things and say, well, that should have been stopped. That should have been stopped. Uh, we don't know. We don't, we don't see the thousands of examples of reports that are taken in by the State Department overseas, by the FBI. By the they, go, they go chase these things. They learn. They got to do some, um, some triage and look at everything. They did in the case of, of the Fort Hood shooter, and his story was, was, was pretty clear, and that was that. So he turns out to be a, nut a nutcase. Uh, so I've made a, I made a point in in those cases and others of not joining that that bandwagon that so often says, "Well, never again." We've got to figure out what went wrong here. Uh, we're in a position at Cato to say, you know, like, look, the Fourth Amendment has is a real trade off uh, between liberty and security, and we give up a little bit of security in order to get the benefits of liberty and the prosperity that that liberty allows us. So we are better off where we are in that trade-off than having all security and trying to, to bring the risks down to zero. Don't ask for zero risks. Don't encourage politicians to promise zero risks. After Boston, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg got on TV and said, we need to rethink the Constitution. <laughs> and nobody flinched. Nobody reacted at all to that. But it's a, pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing for somebody to say, we need to rethink the Constitution in the wake of, in the wake of Boston. Uh, let me move on to a question here. The, the data on what happens with, with SARS investigated, what do we know about it? Where does it go? Is it used in any sort of constructive way to figure out you know, a standard? What, it, does it sit in a cloud somewhere run by Amazon? It's an excellent question. I, I think, um, unfortunately, one we don't have the answer to. 4.8% uh, of the suspicious activity reports between... 2010 and 2012 got investigated by the FBI. Uh, the rest did not. That's a pretty alarming statistic just on its own. But then when you ask what happened with those 4.8% that did get investigated, there's no information forthcoming. Was there an arrest? Was there a, a prosecution? Was there a conviction? Did this help in some way prevent any terrorist attack whatsoever? To my knowledge, we don't have the answer to that question. I mean, Eileen can. Uh, expand on that. That's, <laughs> that <laughs> That's pretty much what we reported in 2013. That um, well, the, the, there was some concern on the FBI's part. They said that you know investigations can take a while, and so a SAR might be reported this year, and it's several years before the investigation's over. So they lose track, um, and then they also said that um, they lose technically they lose track in the system when an uh, if an investigation is linked to a SAR. That we didn't really fully understand since they're able to tell us that 1,200 were investigated, but it seems like further down in the process when they try to associate arrests or prosecutions, the link to the SAR in that part of their system is broken. Well, you have to, as part of discovery in a prosecution, know the genesis of the investigation, right? In theory. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 as far as what happens to the, to the data, this was a concern of many of the state and locals because they want to have control of the information they put in. If, if they put it in something that is later turned out to be wrong, they're liable. So they want to be able to pull that back and, and or amend it to say, you know, okay, we fixed this information. So when the information sharing environment, the director of national intelligence program was developed, there was a five-year time limit with co which coincided with the five-year time limit of 28 CFR Part 23, which the state and locals are used to dealing with, so it's something that makes them comfortable. 
Well, with the FBI, there was no time limit. They retained the information. So there was pressure on them to change that, so they did, and they put in a five-year purge. But the GAO report is very compelling because here's what purge means to the FBI. We take it out of eGuardian and put it into a different system called Guardian, where it stays for another 10 years, something like that. And then after that, it gets put into the automated case support system for another 30 years. So it means key for 30 years. Yes. Right? <laughs> okay. so, so this is a big problem for the state and, and locals, as well as for all of us, where information that is flawed can retain, remain in the system and continue coming back up over and over again. We recently did a uh, uh, FOIA request for, for a media outlet called antiwar.com where an FBI document leaked that showed that they had been investigated. So we did a broader one. And there was a bad piece of information. Uh, Antiwar.com had published an article that somebody was angry about, and they received an email saying, we are going to shut your website down. So not really knowing how to respond, they called the FBI and said, what do we do? The FBI said, well, just send it to us, forward it to us, and we'll figure out what we need to do. So... He forwards it to the FBI, which logs it into the system as antiwar.com and this individual is threatening to shut down the FBI's website. <laughs> Even though if you read the document, it's very clear what it is. And, and that is, is repeated over and over again over the course of about four years where antiwar.com was investigated for the articles that it was publishing over and over again by the FBI, where it was repeated that, well, this subject has previously threatened to shut down the FBI's website, even though anybody going to the original document would know it's wrong. So that bad information can continue circulating in a way that hurts you. And it, without the proper oversight to find that information and purge it, or just purge it after a number of years anyway. I mean, old information, there's a reason, well, I'm dating myself. Uh, there's a reason we didn't, back in the old days, keep phone books past two or three years, right? It's because the information is no longer reliable. But unfortunately, now there's this idea that, that all data is valuable for some reason, even if it's wrong. Um, as we uh, looked at the NYPD after 9-11, they, they got a judge um, as part of a consent decree to change the standard in which they can do investigations. Uh, Pre-9-11, because the, the NYPD had a history of spying on all sorts of groups, um, there was a federal lawsuit and a consent decree, and a judge said, in order to open an investigation that might be related to political or religious activity, you need evidence of a crime. Evidence of a crime. After 9-11, uh, Ray Kelly and his... Uh, Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence, former CIA officer named Dave Cohen, went to the judge and said, we, we can't do that. Evidence of a crime could be two burning buildings. We need to be able to investigate before the crime actually happens. And they persuaded the judge to, to lower the standard. And they, the NYPD said, we're basically going to mold this on the Attorney General guidelines. And their standard, the standard the NYPD used was the, the indication of a possibility of a crime. It's a non-standard standard. I can look outside and look at an apartment building and say there's an indication of a possible crime going, going on across the street. And they use that to, 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 to mount many, 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 many investigations. So my question to the panel is, maybe we need to toughen up the standard. Maybe, maybe like you said, we, we, need a, we need the standard change to suspicious criminal activity. We could actually d document there was criminal activity. 
or actual evidence of a crime, not not what the DIOG, the FBI's Domestic Investigations Operations Guide says, or, or the Attorney General Guidelines. Maybe so many years after 9-11, maybe it's time to maybe it's time to 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 to, to have a standard that isn't so um, um, uh, 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 open to interpretation. Here, here. <laughs> totally agree. Would that make and I, hold on? And would that make us less safer? Not at all. I think it would make it safer because it would it would force law enforcement to focus on real threats. You know, it, the, the number of threats are small. If you if you force them to focus where there is evidence of a threat, that actually makes them more effective. So I, I agree that a tighter legal standard is 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 warranted. Uh, the Brennan Center report uh, is good at that points at pointing out that uh, 28 CFR 23 should be applied to all this stuff. Uh, my, so I score it uh, statically. We would be a little less safe, but so little you wouldn't notice. I actually like Michael German's uh, dynamic scoring, which is that putting the putting the resources elsewhere would actually make us safer. So, uh, good stuff. So I, I don't think that um, we would lose out on safety by tightening up this standard. Um, I, I think that having a low standard, uh, having you know, moved the bar so that it's it's just the lowest common denominator, um, the least amount of suspicion we can possibly have has flooded the system, right? And that is is what uh, Mike was talking about with the Webster Commission, um, how this sort of information gathering can help make you miss the mark. And that, uh, you know, the move should be here towards suspicious criminal activity, right? And that uh, that would both help law enforcement do its job um, and then cut down on the amount of, of noise that is generated by the system. Um, so. Well, I mean, that's Gio's whole premise about collecting performance metrics, not just for the sake of collecting it, but for actually using it to make decisions about do you need to tweak what you put into place moving forward because it's not working exactly as you intended or having unintended consequences. So we think you know, really assessing what we're getting out of the process is important for not only resource allocation decisions, but also to answer questions like that. You know, is it working the way it was intended, or do we need to make changes or tweaks to the process? I'll make one last point. The problem with that, we're seeing that with PRISM, and we're seeing that whether it's the FBI or the NYPD, and I and I heard this once from a case officer at the CIA. Um, you know, when we create these 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 models, when we create these programs, and they don't work, nobody wants to be told their baby is ugly, <laughs> and people are very 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 reluctant to um, to to. To, to relinquish authority, to release just the, the you know the monies that go behind them. So once we give these authorities, and when we once we create these structures uh, 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 and allow the government, whether it's local, state, or federal, to do this, you know the probability that it's going to go away uh, right. is, is is very very low. So anyway, uh, I think I'm going to wrap this up, and I want to thank everybody for coming and our extraordinary panelists. And um, once again, thank you. <laughs>